Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 7th, 2021, we are starting a new series for the new year here on Sharper Iron. From now all the way until Easter, we will be working our way through the gospel according to St. Mark. This is a gospel of action. Mark gets straight to the point with the first verse of his account, and that sense of immediacy carries him swiftly along through his narrative as he writes concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Today, we will be introducing this gospel account as a whole, and we'll be digging into the very first verse, Mark 1, verse 1. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at the Northeast Kansas Lutheran Partnership. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. That's yeah, good to be back. All right. So we are in Mark. Great gospel. Oh, it's fantastic. It, yeah. It's it's short, but that's okay. And and we shouldn't give it second second shrift. Right. Let's talk about Mark. Yeah, Mark, I mean, it's short, but there are there are all these really kind of profound spots in Mark too that you, you don't get other places. He gives you details that you don't get in, you know, and Mark and Matthew have a ton of parallels to each other, right? So Mark often gets talked about as being almost like the the little brother to Matthew, right? Mark wrote first and then Matthew had to come along and like explain and expound because Mark didn't write enough for some crazy nonsense like that, right? And all of that is, you know, the, the big issue is obviously this denial of the inspiration of these, that, that the Holy Spirit actually inspired these words for Mark to pen for us. But it, it also sells short what's there, right? I mean, there's all sorts of really fantastic stuff going on in Mark. Um, and I think that it's one of these gospels that uh, I don't know why, but it's it's almost like it's hard to appreciate Mark unless you sit down and you just listen to the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I would encourage the listeners to do this just in general. It's a great practice. But Mark, it takes about an hour to listen to the whole thing, read at kind of a normal reading pace. Um, and you can find all sorts of audio versions of it online, but sit down and, and listen, you know, if you're listening to, to this, you know, uh, especially if it's on demand, pause it, go listen to Mark and then come back and listen to us. And, and you'll, and you'll catch all this stuff, uh, the things that Mark's doing and how unique it really is, uh, in, in comparison to the, the others. Right. And we should let, we should let all the gospels stand on their own merit. Right. Right. And, and. You know, we put them side by side to see where the differences are so that we can pick up the emphases. And sometimes I think in our minds, particularly with those, what you might call a Sunday school stories, say the feeding of the 5,000, the one that you learn and you know well, sometimes you forget based on what's in each individual gospel account, what's really being emphasized. And sometimes I think Mark of the four, because he is the shortest, because there is so much material that he has that you can find in another gospel, you forget the unique emphases that he brings to the table. And so like you said, reading it straight through, listening to it straight through is an excellent way to really begin to appreciate the, the things that Mark does bring to the table, the things that he gives us that maybe you don't get in Matthew or Luke or in John, and the way that he helps us to get that full picture of Jesus that we do have with all four gospel accounts. Right. So with that, Pastor Kilgo, and we'll have plenty of time to talk today. Well, no, we probably won't have plenty of time. We'll probably run out of time. <laughs> but we'll have plenty of time over the course of this series to dig into some of those things. And we'll talk more today. Just give us some of that basic background information to get started before we start thinking about the gospel as a whole. Who is Mark, the one who's got his name attached to this account? Right. So, so at the outset, we should say we're not completely sure, right? And just be upfront about that, right? We don't have... Um, you know, a signature line at the end of this, that this is written by, by Mark and, you know, this is which Mark that is, et cetera. Um, but we have a, a pretty good idea based on uh, some other areas of, of the New Testament and the 
uh, the tradition of the early church going back all the way um, into the the mid 100s and and late 100s. You've got a number of church fathers that write about who this is, and they all seem to agree that this is uh, the mark that shows up, particularly in Acts. That's kind of the main place that he shows up. So um, this is John Mark. Um, he shows up first uh, in Acts 12. Uh, he's uh, he's actually there at this house of his mother, Mary, you know, because everybody in the New Testament's named Mary, if you're if you're a woman. Um, and then uh, uh, he encounters Paul and Barnabas there and he goes with them and he leaves um, in chapter 13 when they go to uh, Pamphylia. And then in chapter 15, um, or sorry, uh, he goes he goes with them initially and then Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas when Paul and Barnabas go to Pamphylia. Sorry about that. Um, and so then this gets brought back up in, in Acts 15. Um, Paul doesn't want to bring Barnabas or uh, Mark with them again because uh, he had left. And so it kind of sounds like he's he's a little sour at, at, at Mark, right? Uh, and so Barnabas and Mark go together and um, Barnabas, we find out in the book of Colossians, is the cousin of Mark, right? So he's got that connection. Um, but then in, um, like, he shows up again in, in Philemon, but particularly in Second Timothy, you know, this is towards the end of Paul's life. Um, he's, Paul's giving directions of, you know, you know, sending people around and telling people, you know, bring this person to me. And he says, bring Mark to me because I find him useful in my ministry. So it seems like things got patched up, whatever might have been at issue. Um, and then he, you, you have another Mark mentioned in first uh, Peter at the end of first um, uh, Peter chapter five. Um, he talks about um, uh, Mark, my son, right? Uh, so, and, and there's questions on whether or not that's a biological son, or if this is more of like a Christian familial sort of name, like we would call each other brother, um, like you and I are brothers in the ministry, this sort of thing that, um, uh, that sort of language. I, either way, there, there's a close relationship with with Peter there. Um, so that's the mark of of the New Testament. And then there is a a great tradition that, as well, there is a naked boy in Mark 14. Um, this is one of the details you get in Mark, right? That that just doesn't show up elsewhere. Um, when they go and arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, uh, the guard grabs this boy, this unnamed boy by the, by the clothes, by the cloak. And the boy apparently like wriggles his way out and escapes. And the guy's left there holding his, his cloak and the boy runs away naked. Right. And it's interesting. It, it's kind of funny to me. If you look at like, you know, you've got the section headings and stuff in, um, in the gospel. So if you look at Mark chapter 14, um, you've got this, this one line um, and it, it, it's just its own thing a young man flees, right? And it, it's just this one little line that, that's own, like its own little section, the way the, the, uh, the editors section this out, which is kind of funny to me. Uh, but that's, a lot of people think that that's Mark as well. And this is part of like, he's actually, he is around, not as much as you would have someone like John or Matthew, right? But it'd probably be more along the lines of someone like Luke, right? Who, who receives this account, uh, most likely from Peter, um, and his close connection there. And, uh, and, and that's where we get kind of all the, the kind of details, the intimate details, but also like, there are these things like this, like, you know, how would you know that? And why would that be included unless you're actually that guy? Right. 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 So, okay. So when we look at the information that we get in the new Testament, there is a Mark or a John Mark that shows up several times in the book of acts. He's connected with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. He's a cousin of Barnabas. Even he's connected with Peter, assuming that we've got the same Mark. We can't be certain, I suppose, but very likely. So, and potentially depending on how you take that, that verse there in Mark 14, potentially connected at least somewhat with Jesus during his earthly ministry. That is the man, the Christian, who the Holy Spirit inspires to write this account. Now, you mentioned he's usually connected with Peter and his preaching, particularly by the church fathers. Right. So in terms of dating of Mark and the place where Mark might have written, what do we know there? Um, so again, we're, you know, 
we're going to look at the the early church fathers here, and and they do talk about this, and they they seem to indicate that Mark comes after Matthew and Luke, but before John, um, and that does make some sense too. Um, you know, one of the the things about Mark is you don't have any sort of genealogy, right? You've got a genealogy in Matthew, you've got a a, gene, um, a sort of genealogy in in Luke. You've got these birth narratives, right? John gives you kind of this this big prologue, and Mark just starts, right? It's kind of like you're you're mid thought, and you like walked in on the conversation as it's already started, um, and and that that's just how Mark is, right? And but also that his ordering is different, like so he's not ordered chronologically like the other ones are. So um, that makes a lot of sense if. Uh, if there's already a couple of gospels out there that are providing these other details, right? And and the early church fathers, um, guys like Irenaeus and these guys, um, uh, they seem to indicate that um, they believe Mark comes after and somewhere in the 50s, 60s time period. And these are guys that are writing within, you know, a hundred to 200 years of this stuff being written down. So, I mean, we should, we should provide or give quite a bit of weight to, um, to those traditions that were in place at that time. And so if those church fathers are also going to connect Mark with Peter primarily as I think, is it Papias, the church father yep. who says that Mark was the interpreter or the translator, depending on you, of, of Peter, right. then that's going to place him in Rome probably. Yeah, so this is going to be, and this is the other part for the dating, right, is that if this is when Peter is in Rome, then that gives us a lot better kind of narrowing of when that is. And if that's the case, then you're looking at like early 60s, right, late 50s, early 60s, somewhere in there. Um, so we can kind of get it narrowed down. But it would seem that it is it is later um, than had been considered in some some scholarship will we'll put Mark like really, really early and that and that just doesn't seem to be the case from um, from some of the stuff you get in Mark, some of the stuff in the New Testament, but also from the church fathers themselves who are nearest that time. So we've got John Mark from the book of Acts, a companion of Paul and Barnabas, a son of Peter, whether that means biological or son in the sense that Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith, a son of Peter, one who heard Peter's preaching, who's going to write it down for us, probably to the Christians in Rome, probably after Matthew, maybe after Luke, giving us another picture of Jesus, going to give us some specific emphases. So let's talk a little bit about some of these features in the Gospel of Mark. And we really could spend the whole episode talking about this, Pastor Kelgo, but just yeah. give us start to give us a taste for the flavor that we're going to get from Mark. Um, so, so I think one of the first things is kind of your overall structure that Mark seems to have kind of two, almost two halves to it. And it's, and it's pretty close to being like actually half and half. And it, people vary on where they put this. I tend to put the center point as the transfiguration. And um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that uh, after the transfiguration, you have this very intentional movement toward Jerusalem at that point in, in the text. Um, and we'll talk about the immediately's, but there's some immediately's that come right after that, that kind of press that as well. But also you have in Mark, um, how Jesus is referred to by various, various people, the various entities that you have one name in particular that that's very important. That is son of God shows up in the text that we're talking about today but you also have this in the transfiguration from the voice of the father. This is my beloved son, right? And then you also have that um, anchoring the end of the gospel in the centurion's confession. Truly, this man was the son of God. And so there's actually only three times in the gospel of Mark um, that some uh, someone other than the demons, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but someone other than demons confesses Jesus to be the son of God. And that's Mark in his one line introduction. Uh, the father born, the voice born from heaven at the mountain of transfiguration and the centurion at the cross that then that's it uh, but these these act as kind of pillars for mark that are kind of holding up the rest of the narrative and are the places where mark really does kind of tend to emphasize 
those sections quite a bit. So that that would probably be the first thing is to to recognize that sort of structure overall. Okay, so this title, and, and again, we'll look at the first verse here on the second half of the program. This title for Jesus, the Son of God, as familiar with that title as we are as Christians and regularly use that to refer to Jesus, Mark's only going to do it in very specific ways. And again, you're pointing us to the very beginning to what's close to the middle of the text in the transfiguration, and then ultimately, and I would say conclusively, at the crucifixion, that right. that Mark is is driving us in this gospel to make that confession ultimately with the centurion when we see Jesus on the cross. That's where we need to see Jesus as the Son of God, which I think plays into another one of Mark's features that is often pointed out and maybe sometimes misunderstood, is that Jesus will more often, I suppose, in Mark than some of the other gospels, he will Mm -hmm. tell people to be quiet about right. who he is, particularly early on. So how does that go together with this confession of Jesus as the son of God on the cross? Yeah. So you've got a number of these. So like he'll, he'll do a miracle or whatever, and then he'll tell the guy that was just healed or you tell the crowd, see that you say nothing to anyone. Like it'll be like really emphatic. Right. Um, or he'll tell this to the demons, like right at the outset. Um, it, he'll, um, well, he doesn't tell me. It just says, uh, he did not permit the demons to speak because the demons were confessing who he was, right? And so there's this thing, it sometimes gets called the messianic secret. That's probably not the greatest name, but we can you know, thank a, a German theologian for that. Um, but what, what it is, is that you see, particularly in the first half of the gospel, um, and, and it's interesting because it doesn't, it doesn't show up after... Um, after the transfiguration. So he tells them not to tell anybody about the transfiguration. And, and it says, um, uh, so this is nine, nine as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. Right. So he, he kind of puts a pause button on the, the revelation of the transfiguration itself. Right. Cause you can imagine that, you know, uh, math, uh, sorry, uh, Peter, James, and John are, you know, probably going to want to run around and tell everybody what just happened, right? Who wouldn't? And he's like, don't tell anybody until I've come back from the dead, right? And then, and then that the, these commands to not do this kind of go away. That seems to be kind of the the capstone on the commands that this is why. And, and the thing is, is that Jesus, especially in the gospel of Mark, very clearly wants to be known in his death. Um, that, that, that's the, um, in many different ways, that's the high point of the gospel itself. Um, that's where you get uh, Jesus being um, being crowned. That's where you get Jesus um, praying. That's where you get you know Jesus filling all these kind of messianic uh, roles. That's where uh, Jesus is confessed. Um, the only time that he's confessed by a human to be the Son of God. Um, that all, all these things kind of get their their fullness, and also all the immediately's go away surrounding the, the, the very last immediately is I think in 15 one and, and the, the narrative slows down very noticeably when you get to that point. And so Mark takes his time with the crucifixion it, it, because it's the, it's the main point. Right. And, and we kind of nod our heads. We're like, yeah, well that, that makes sense. But um, this does get lost a lot of times in, in these sorts of things uh, missing, you know, missing the forest for the trees sort of deal. You know, we start asking this question, well, why, why is Jesus telling people not to go tell them about it? Because he doesn't want to be known as a miracle worker or as a parable teacher or any of these things. He wants to be known as uh, what Mark proclaims him to be in the opening verse, um, the Christ, the son of God, right? That's what he wants to be known as. And he defines that all throughout the gospel, what it means for him to be the Christ, what it means for him to be the son of God. Right. And that's that's in his death. Right. And even I would say, you know, climactically, he does that right before his transfiguration where he defines, you know, Peter confess. He doesn't confess him. You are the son of the living God. Like you hear in Matthew, Mark tells us, Peter says, you are the Christ. But Jesus does go on to tell them what that means. Right. And it means that he must suffer death. So, I mean, all of this, you know, and I think that that adds some weight to what you're saying about the transfiguration, that maybe that full event there where Jesus tells them 
what it means for him to be the Christ combined with his transfiguration, putting all those things together as sort of a, you know, a bit of a pivot point here that does turn you toward the cross. You mentioned, Pastor Kilgo, Mark's use of the word immediately. That's another thing that mm-hmm. you don't have to read very long at all in Mark to see how often he talks about that. I even referred to this as the gospel of action earlier because of how often he says immediately. How does, I mean, we talk about him as the gospel of action and we see a lot of Jesus action. You're not going to see as much words in red. If you've got the red letter Bible, you know, in Matthew, you're going to see these long discourses of Jesus. Some of that in Mark, but not nearly as much. When we call Mark a gospel of action, or we we notice the word immediately, I mean, what are we what are we saying about Mark? What are we noticing about his gospel? Yeah, so um, like you say, you you don't have to wait very long at all. The first one where it actually comes out in in English is in verse ten of chapter one. It is interesting to me that that um the the quote from Isaiah, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, is is actually the same word. I don't know what to do with that, but it is the same word as immediate. Um, and so what Mark is doing is he's kind of moving you through the narratives, right? Um, because he does want to touch on these things. He does want to, he does want to show forth the, the miracles of Jesus. He wants to show forth some of the teachings of Jesus. Um, I mean, talk about the, the distinction of miracle and parable ratio, um, in a minute, but, um, he wants to get to certain things. And he wants to get there and then slow down and take take his time. And so there's this this very interesting thing that uh, that you see showing up, and that is that um, the majority of the immediately's are front loaded in in the book. In fact, um, I, I forget exactly how many. I, there, I think there's like sixty something of them in in the book. But there's a lot, um, but ten of them are in the first chapter. Right. And if you're reading along, you're, you're looking at um, Mark chapter one. Um, it, it, it's interesting because you get, um, you know, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus and John preaching in the wilderness. And you get all of that in a matter of like six verses or something like that. I mean, it just, you know, it just moves through it. Um, and then it slows down a little bit. Four, five and six, you get a, another increase. Um, and then it, it kind of tapers off a little bit as you near the transfiguration, you get the transfiguration that the narrative slows down, especially as Jesus is foretelling his death. You get these three foretell- uh, foretellings in chapter eight of Jesus foretelling his, uh, of, of his passion. And then right after the transfiguration, there's this kind of increase in the immediately's again, um, in, at the beginning of chapter nine, you've got a couple that show up in, in 10 and 11 and then 12 and 13 have none. Um, and this is where Mark does the majority of presenting Jesus, the teacher in his gospel. Um, the, the, the miracles and stuff are very front loaded in, in, uh, in Mark, um, that, that, um, you get, uh, you get some kind of sayings of Jesus, but you get this whole section in chapters 12 and 13 are almost entirely Jesus, Jesus teaching and confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he slows that down. And then you get this other little burst of immediately's right after that, um, that moves you through the, the garment Gethsemane and the, um, the, the initial trial with the high priests. And then they stop, um, at cha- 15 verse one, I believe is the last immediate, um, it's um, it doesn't show up in the English, but as soon as it was morning, so basically uh, immediately it was morning. The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Right, so that's the last immediately, and then it just, it, like I said, it just slows down so clearly in the text for the last two chapters. Um, so it. it the immediately's are really, really important in Mark for the flow of it, but also to see where he's emphasizing certain aspects of what's, what are the really, really, really important parts that we need to be paying attention to. So he's not intending to rush us with the word immediately, but he is intending to move us along and indicate particularly, this is, I think it's a bit ironic, but if I'm following you, the word immediately actually helps us to see where we need to slow down and, right. and pay closer attention. 
Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of like reverse flags. So, you know, the, the various um, biblical writers have these kind of flags that they'll hold up that a lot of it's different for different guys, but um, uh, so like Jenna, a, a good one is in Genesis. Um, Genesis has these, these are the generations of, right. That, that Moses writes out uh, very clear in, in the text. And these are kind of these flags that, that Moses is holding up to kind of tell you to pay attention. Um, John does this with the IM statements, right? It's one of his flags. Mark's flag is is immediately, but it's it's almost like a reverse flag, right? Um, you're, Mark wants you to pay attention when he's not holding up the flag, right? Yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting, uh, but it but it works. I mean, like I said, if if you listen to this thing, um, it's really noticeable when they go away. Yeah, yeah, and 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 then you slow down to see what he wants you to see there in mm-hmm. chapter fifteen that Jesus is the Son of God precisely when he is dying on the cross to save you from your sins. We're going to go ahead and take our break here, Pastor Kilgill. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 7th. We are looking at Mark 1 verse 1 today with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at the Northeast Kansas Lutheran Partnership. Pastor Kilgo, we've been introducing the gospel according to St. Mark so far. We we're talking prior to the break about his use of the word immediately and how Mark loves to use that word to actually teach us when to slow down. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that comes out through that word immediately is Mark likes to talk a lot about what Jesus does. And I think I mentioned you, you're not going to see quite as many words in red here, not as much of right. Jesus teaching, not that it's unimportant, but it just doesn't occupy as much space. So what do we make of this, that Mark tends to emphasize the actions of Jesus a little more than his teaching? Yeah, so so this is definitely one of the big characteristics of Mark. So uh, if you look at the gospel writers, especially the three synop- synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you compare the parables and the miracles, it becomes very clear um, that, that Mark is very different in these. So it's, it's interesting because as far as miracles, they're all pretty similar. Matthew's got 20, Mark's got 18, Luke's got 20. So they're all about the same page. Um, when it comes to the parables, depending on how you list this out, so if you're if you've got a Lutheran Study Bible, there's a chart on page sixteen oh nine of the Lutheran Study Bible uh, that's got this, and it's the parabolic sayings of our Lord, right? And so it's, these are parables or parabolic sort of sayings, and if you count those up, you get thirty two for Matthew, fourteen for Mark, and thirty six for Luke. So half the number. But it's even more exaggerated if you look at the ones that are actually called parables in the text. Mark's only got four. You've got the the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed growing, which is unique to Mark. Mark's the only one that gives that one. Uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the tenants. So Mark gives those four, and three of those are right up front in chapter four. Um, the other one, the tenants, uh, I'm blank. I'm forgetting where that is. I think it's in, that's uh, during Holy week. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you the chapter off the top I think, of my head, but I think it's, it's during 12. Holy week. I think it's chapter yeah. 12. So, um, it, so if that's the case, then you've got Mark's ratio is you've got four actual parables that are called parables and 18 miracles, right? So, mm. For some reason, Mark wants us to pay attention to what Jesus is doing. And part of that is that Mark is pre- presenting um, Jesus' humanity um, very clearly throughout the gospel of, of Mark, but in a way that ends up highlighting his divinity in a pretty unique way as well. So this is one of the, I think, the mischaracterizations of Mark is that you have 
um, you you don't have Mark presenting a divine Jesus in the same way that um, Matthew or Luke will. John is like that. Basically, that's a whole gospel of John right from the very beginning. This guy's God. Um, Matthew and Luke are doing the same sort of thing in a little bit different way. But Mark does, too. And it's it's because Mark focuses in on what Jesus is actually doing and how he's doing it, that it becomes even more. It, it's kind of the same thing as the immediately. So when Jesus does talk in Mark, um, it's really, really saturated with kind of divine language and divine sort of talk. Right. Um, so, uh, for example, you've got a couple of I am statements in in Mark that are, that are pretty interesting. One's walking in the water. One is confronting the Pharisees. You'll see the son of um, man descending uh, or ascending to the right hand of the father. Right. Um, You also have um, the, the fact that Jesus talks to the demons and commands them to do stuff in a much more profound way than you have in the other gospels. Um, And even though this isn't him necessarily saying something, it is part of kind of the, the, speaking sort of part uh, where he doesn't allow the demons to speak right um and all these things because jesus doesn't talk very often in mark when he does um you're much more inclined to kind of pay pretty close attention to what what he's saying right so so it's this interesting thing because he doesn't talk very often when he does um it ends up emphasizing it even more right um so uh, and and that's that happens along with the presenting of the very human nature and physical nature of of this uh, God in the flesh that is Jesus, right? It, you know, you might not get as many of the longer extended periods of Jesus' speech, but when he does speak, he does stuff. I mean, you you mentioned the connection to the demons, and you'll get a lot of these just short sentences from Jesus even in the context of those miracles and you see the authority of his word as he speaks, which again does lend a lot of importance then to when Mark records those longer sections, you recognize just how important it is that you are hearing the word of this man who is also truly the son of God, the one who is crucified for you. So again, Pastor Kilgo, we could spend the whole hour talking about Mark in general, but let's go ahead and see how Mark introduces some of these themes already in his very first verse, which I I do think sets a theme for this book. You might even consider it a title of sorts. In Mark 1 verse 1, the evangelist writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the text we're looking at today, just that first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we could probably spend the whole hour talking just about that verse, too. Let's let's just take it one word at a time, the beginning. Now, I'll let you—I mean, I know you've got some notes here. When I hear the word beginning— at the beginning of a gospel, my mind starts to go back to Genesis 1, verse 1. Right. I know we don't— typically think of Mark as one who's going to emphasize the Old Testament fulfillment as much as, say, Matthew does. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's at least one thing I want to hear already, is that Mark is connecting his gospel to the Old Testament from the beginning. I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so um, this is an interesting thing. So as as far as I can tell, Mark only quotes the Old Testament directly once, but his gospel is actually filled with allusions to the Old Testament. And um, Jesus doing things that are particular fulfillments of the Old Testament. And so, yeah, to, to draw this back to um, uh, to the beginning, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, I think is um, would certainly be there. And in Mark, seemingly understanding the nature of the Old Testament and, you know, one of the, we didn't mention this, but one, one of the things with Mark is that he quotes Aramaic all the time, which would have been the language Jesus actually speaks, right? So there's this this almost a stronger connection into kind of Old Testament sort of stuff than you than you get in in a different way again than than the other evangelists. And so I think that it's certainly fine to con- connect it with that in the same way that we would with John, right? Uh, that John begins. Um, his gospel in the same way in the beginning was the word. Right. Um, and, and so that what's interesting to me 
and and I don't still know exactly what to do with this, but that there this gospel starts in this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there's never any like con- concluding statement, any bookmark statement, the the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And and I'm sure that, you know, part of that is going to be, you know, that's just not how you, you know, write letters in the ancient world, right? I'm sure that's part of it. But um, but I think one of the interesting things to think about is kind of theologically what's going on here as well is that there there is a beginning to the gospel, right? That That's when, when Jesus does stuff, when he starts working for the salvation of his people, when he lives, when, when he actually fulfills these titles that Mark's going to give him, that, that um, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, but there is no end to that, right? Um, well, once it's done, it just flows into eternity. Um, it, it's why we call it the eternal gospel, right? So uh, th- there is a beginning to this, but there is no end um, to, to the Lord's um, serving us with his, uh, with his good news, with his mercy, with his forgiveness, right? There, there's no end of Jesus being our Messiah, or the son of God or any of those sorts of things. Right. So I, I think that's kind of an intriguing thing to think about with the whole beginning language. And so Mark says it is the beginning of the gospel. And this is a word that we use regularly as Christians. We hear it all the time in church. We even refer to the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as gospels. I don't think we mentioned this previously, but you pointed this out to me that Mark of the gospels actually makes use of this word more than the others. So what is this word? Gospel. Yeah. So first, Mark is the only one to actually refer to his writing as the gospel, right? The, the other ones don't, don't title it that way. Um, but also, so, so Mark uses this word, um, which is in the Greek oil galion. Um, he refers to it, or he uses it eight times. Matthew uses it four times. And this is the really fascinating thing. Um, Luke and John do not use this word at all in their writings, right? The two longest gospels <laughs> don't actually use the word gospel, which is fascinating to me. Um, so Mark actually uses it more. He's the shortest and he uses it more uh, twice as often as Matthew does, right? Um, or twice as much, which I, I'm sure you could do some sort of ratio that ends up being like, you know, three and a half times as much or whatever. But we should remember, so this is one of these words. I'm convinced of this. We've got all these words floating around that we use them all the time. And because they're so common to us, we we just kind of lose track of what they actually mean, right? So we use the word gospel all the time and we kind of forget what it means. It's literally good news or good message, but there's a bunch of implications with, with that, right? The first is that there is a speaking aspect to this. Like there's actually words that are being spoken that, that, um, that connect to the gospel and that there's a, a messenger as uh, St. Paul will talk about in Romans 10, right? Uh, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, brings the gospel, right? There we translate it as good news. Um, but, but also like we, we should just kind of pause and, and ask what, what makes the thing good, right? And, and what makes the thing good, this good news is the fact that our sins are being forgiven, that death is being undone, that the devil is being thrown out, like all these, all these things that torment us, all these enemies that we have in this life, um, that we can do nothing about, um, that, that the gospel is the fact that God is going to take care of all of that and has taken care of all of that in Christ, in his death. Uh, so uh, that's what the good news is. And and I know um, periodically, I, I think Pastor Wolf Mueller talked about this when he introduced this on issues, et cetera, um, that there is kind of a militaristic language to this where you have the the messenger who's coming back from battle and you don't know whether or not you've won the battle or not until the messenger gets there, right? So this is like the, the whole, you know, runner from marathon sort of guy, right? And... um. What makes it good? Uh, what makes it a good message is that the battle's won, right? It's it's a bad message if the battle's lost, right? So it's entirely dependent on you know what happens, what what's the outcome of the battle that's being waged. And for us, it's a battle that's being waged between Christ and the devil, and which shows up in Mark right away, right? 
And the, and the good news is that Christ wins that battle, right? Yeah. I mean, as you're talking there, we just came out of a series in the previous year going through Advent with the prophets, and we heard a lot of Isaiah, which, of course, as you mentioned, Mark is going to quote here in the verses that we'll cover tomorrow, that theme of the messengers bringing this good news of victory in a war is all over the place in Isaiah. I mean, and in coming out of the Christmas season, as we have, that's the good news. Your God reigns. He's won the victory for you. And Mark's saying, here it is. Here it is for you. Mark is one of those men who has the beautiful feet proclaiming that gospel to us still today. And in that sense, he's I mean, he's spoiler alert here at the very beginning. He's telling you how it ends. Right. <laughs> it's good. You win. Jesus won for you. The battle is the the strife is or the victory won. It, right. There's there's the good news for you. And and Mark's proclaiming it here in in Jesus Christ. And a lot of times we we put those together, and that's not wrong to talk about Jesus Christ, but you've actually got two different things there. You've got Jesus, which is is his name, and you've got Christ, which is his title. So right. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we should remember, again, you know, Jesus, we use this word all the time, and we kind of forget what it means. And Matthew tells us, right, it's important for us to know what this means, and it's that God saves, right? And again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go back to... Um, you know, that this nature of the gospel that God saved or the, the, the nature of, of Mark's gospel that how does God save? Well, he saves by dying. He saves by uh, by being nailed to a cross and on the third day rising from the dead. Right. That, that that's how God goes about saving his people um, and redeeming us from the curse, purchasing us from from the devil and from our sin. All these wonderful things. And that that he's the Christ, that, that Christ is um, uh the word for Messiah or anointed one. Right. And so, you know, you look back in the old Testament, you know, who's anointed, you've got prophets, you've got priests, we've, you've got Kings. And this is where we talk about the threefold office of Jesus, um, as prophet, priest, and King. And where do those find their fulfillment? Well, they find their fulfillment in, in the crucifixion, right? Where, where, uh, Jesus as, as, um, as prophet, um, is, uh, speaking God's word to us from the cross is is praying for us uh, from the cross. Um, as our priest, he goes um, to present the sacrifice and to be the sacrifice on the cross. And as our king, he's crowned with thorns and he sits upon the uh, on the throne of wood. Right. So that, that that's what it means for him to be um, the anointed one. And, and what's he anointed for? He's anointed uh, for death. And that's actually one of the things that's interesting um, in Mark. Uh, you get the transfiguration uh, and you move into then um, that this whole, you move almost immediately into Holy Week. Um, and uh, right at the outset of the actual passion narratives, um, Mark places the anointing with oil right at the beginning of it. So Mark in Mark, you get the anointing with oil and then you get the, um, the Lord's Supper and then you get the betrayal and arrest, right? Right. Boom, boom, boom. Right. In rapid succession. Right. Um, but Jesus says specifically, um, she has anointed me um, for my burial beforehand. Right. That this, this is this is the anointment. Right. This is the the um, the, the messianic um, reality is that Jesus is Jesus is here to die. Right. Um, and that and that's all bound up into this word Christ, right? But he's here to die for a very particular reason and particular people, and that's that he would redeem us from sin, right? He's not just dying because he need you know to die, but he's dying as as John will put it as um, as a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we come back to that climactic title here in the first verse, which we've looked at a little bit, but there's plenty more to look at, the Son of God. Yeah, so so that it, it's interesting because Jesus throughout the gospel referred to him chiefly as the Son of Man, right? Which I would, um, this is kind of part of that hu- humanity aspect that, that Mark presents. Um, and that um, we, we mentioned that this shows up again at the transfiguration and at the crucifixion with the centurion who is a Gentile, right? That, that, that shouldn't be missed in this, that it's, it's a, it's a Gentile who confesses him, not, not a Jew, right? The Jews are all around the, all around the, the crucifixion kind of reviling him and, and, and taunting him. Right. Um, 
uh, but also that early on, especially it's the demons that confess Jesus. Um, and, and so, and this reminds me, um, I always forget exactly where it's, I think it's in Peter, even the demons believe and shudder, right? Um, that, that, that the demons know better than the people around who Jesus is and what he's there to do. Right. And they're kind of freaking out about it. Um, and they'll, they'll say, you know, what, what have you to do with us? Um, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, right. Um, the, these sorts of things. So it, it becomes very clear that this is a, a kind of pretty high divine sort of title. Um, it's, it's indicating exactly who Jesus is. And in keeping with the whole theme of Mark, Jesus does not want that kind of getting out until he's done what he's there to do, that his work is done and that his name would be then understood in view of his work. Right. So that for him to be the son of God is to be, um, the one who dies. Right. Um, and so he keeps it, he keeps it on the down low. He keeps it quiet until, um, finally it's done. And then he, he releases them. Right. So this is where, um, again, you go back to the very last command of that, um, uh, that he, that they would not tell anybody until the son of man had been raised from the dead. Right. Um, but even there, like he, he calls himself the son of man, right. He doesn't say the son of God. Um, so, so that, that title is reserved for, um, very expressly divine God things, right? Um, that here in the opening that it's God coming to save his people by sending himself in the flesh to die and to be raised at the transfiguration. It's, you know, um, him being proclaimed as the second person of Trinity and at the crucifixion, the, the, the kind of finality of this, that, um, uh, that this is the one who who's died even for the Gentiles. Um, and along the way, the demons are going to recognize that this is the guy who's, you know, going to come and boot them out. Right. It's, it's like at all these moments where, you know, Mark gives you that title, the son of God at those key moments. So that as you see him throughout the rest of his gospel, and, and as you said, he's often seen as a, the way it'll be phrased is he's a very human Jesus. Mm-hmm. When you see the very human Jesus, Mark also wants you to know you are also seeing the divine Jesus. Right. I mean, you know, he's not two separate Jesuses. He is one. And so when you see him doing all of these things, you can know for certain this is, in fact, the son of God who's doing those things for you. And particularly to know that at the cross, because if there was a moment when you would look at Jesus and think he's not the son of God, that's probably the moment in Mark's gospel where you would be tempted to think that. And in fact, it is those mocking him who who say they will believe in him if he comes down. Right. But he doesn't come down because he wants you to believe. And Mark wants you to get this, that he is the son of God precisely there on the cross when he dies for you. And that, I mean, that's gospel. That's good news. Right. Right. And so we can kind of um, try and paraphrase these words a little bit and, and draw this out into a uh, phrase this a little bit different. So we could say something like, you know, the, the initiation of the good preaching of God who saves through the anointed one who is God in the flesh. Right. So you can kind of re- rephrase this stuff a little bit like that, which is helpful sometimes, especially when you get really, really common, well-known words to kind of back yourself off of it and remember just how wonderful these words are, right? How, how wonderful this statement is just so fantastic um, that we need to not look past all of those words because every single one of them is loaded, right? So we've got about three minutes here, Pastor Kogo. So give us that that alternate title again. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad Mark was brief in the way he wrote it, but I do appreciate. So give us, give us that fuller title again. And with these last three minutes, help us to, to wrap things up, you know, remind us what we're going to see in Mark. And again, the good news that's here just in this first verse. Yeah. So, so something along the lines of, um, and I just made it up on the fly last time. So let's see if I match myself. <laughs> um, the, the initiation of the good preaching of the God who saves through his Messiah who is God in the flesh, right? Uh, so, 
so and and that this is going to be then what Mark's going to be showing the entire time, right? Is God who is um, coming into your flesh in order to save you um, from the devil, who's the um, the first character really that um, that that he that he meets. So you get this, you know, in verse twelve already. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he's in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, right? And then he goes. Um, and he starts, you know, calling his disciples, he starts casting out demons, right? He just gets right to work, um, at, um, showing forth that he actually is the Messiah and he's going to continue this, um, uh, going all the way. And then right in the middle, he's going to make it really, really clear. He's going to say the son of man, um, must be crucified at the hands of sinners, and on the third day, ray, be raised. And he's going to use the, this word in there, must, right? Um, and and it's not that um, he's like bound to this in some sort of like jail sentence sort of way. But in, in order to redeem us, in order to purchase us back by his holy and precious blood, the only way that that's going to happen is by him being nailed to a cross, right? Um, because God loves us, because he is merciful, uh, because he wishes to... Um, uh, bring us out of the strong man's house is one of these parables that that um, John will will or Mark will bring up the parable of the strong man. Um, uh, he must go in um, into the strong man's house and plunder us out of that house, right? Um, and the way that he's going to do that is is in his death and in his resurrection, right? And 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 again, because he is merciful and because he loves us, he must do that right um he doesn't have a choice because he's bound himself to his to his love and to his promises pastor sean kilgo serves at the northeast kansas lutheran partnership helping us today introduce the gospel according to saint mark and the first verse mark one verse one pastor kilgo thanks for being our guest today yeah thanks for having me back mark has good news for you God himself has come to save. He has come to save in the person of his son, Jesus. That is what his name means. He saves. He saves you from your sins. And that good news means that the victory has been won for you. The fight is over. Jesus has won it. He was anointed for this, to die for your sins, to rise from the dead, to be your Savior. That's the good news that Mark has for you, the good news that we will discover here on Sharper Iron over the next several months. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.